Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Optive Theology Podcast. I'm Andy Schmidt, here with Nick Gibson. We're back. Um, today, we're going to be talking about love and the question of what is love. And so um, I wrote some questions down. I think this is an important um, topic because I think a lot of churches and a lot of Christians just kind of throw the word love around and don't, and they don't really like define it or like, you know, the culture has a, ver- a version of what love is. Christians have a version of what love is. Everybody's got a different version of what love is. And so I think that it is important for Christians to kind of know what love is or what it means scripturally. So we're going to be talking about love and what does it mean? And what is love? Um, so I'm just going to jump right into it with the first question. Um, <clears throat> so you brought, t- you brought on the most touchy feely guy, you know, for this one. Yeah. Yeah. Right. That's, that was on purpose, right? We wanted to get somebody. I was thinking either you or Tom, but I didn't, it was kind of last second. So, so we went with you, our, our last option. Um, but all right, so here we go. I'm going to, I'm going to read the first question. When we read scripture, we see that Christians are called to love God, love each other, and even love our enemies. Cultural or culture usually has its own idea of what the word love means, but how should we define love as Christians? And this is kind of like a pretty broad general question, but um, I think we could probably get into defining each of those four ways of, or versions of love in scripture. But I mean, what, what is your answer to that? Um, I don't, I mean, I, oh, it's okay. Let me, let me say it this way. So I, I think that a fairly classical definition of love works pretty well for scripture. So I normally will say that love should be defined as something like the virtuous commitment to, of the self to the true good of another. So it is, um, the kind of thing it is, is that it's a virtuous commitment. It is committed not to what another person necessarily like says they want, but it's committed to their true good, which assumes like a conceptualization of the good and humanity and all those kinds of things like built into the definition. And it's, and it has a subject that is, there's like an, an, there's another person. So you're committing virtuously to the true good of another. So it's an I thou or an I you relationship by definition. So it's personal, it's virtuous and it's you think the, the truth. And do, do you think, I mean, so I guess the, my question here was like differentiating it from the culture. So do you think that the culture like generally has it right then with how they view love? No. Um, I mean, you'll get, I, I think that you, there are different definitions you'll get from people, but I think that, um, I, I think that they get all of those things wrong. I, I, I do think that in a lot of cases, culturally, they have the last criteria, right? Which is that there it's a, it's an I, you or I, thou relationship. So love only makes sense if there's an, if there's another being right. Loving yourself. Yeah. You could talk. I mean, that makes a certain kind of sense, but like love is inherently it's, is a love of another. And so I think, I think culturally most people get that right. They know love is supposed to move outwardly towards another person. I, I don't think that, I think that people would often agree to the idea of it being to the true, the true good of another person, but we would be vastly at odds with what is in another person's true good. Right. Um, but a lot of times what you get with um, people who are really into the concept of empathy and they feel like that is the controlling concept of how we should relate to each other. Or if you're, if you're talking with somebody who um, is focused on loving people that they consider marginalized people for some, for some reason or another up until fairly recently, that would have been like LGBTQ people. But now with the big movement, the anti-racism movement, mm-hmm. that's kind of like flaring right now, really, really hot. Um, I think it would be like people of, of races that yeah. are considered intersectionally disadvantaged. And so like when you're quote loving that person, um, because you don't, um, you're not inside of their lived experience. I'm doing quotations around lived experience. Um, you can't possibly know what's in their true good. Mm-hmm. Because you don't know what it's like to be them, right? So therefore, true, true mm-hmm. love is giving them what they ask for. So if it's an LGBTQ person and they want you to just accept them and affirm them and tell them what they're doing is fantastic, that's what love owes them. If it's a person of another racial or another intersectional um, identity and they say, listen, you don't know what it's like to be me. What I need is X. Then love is giving them X if that's what they say they need. Because you can't possibly know what they need. Right. So I, I think there's a little bit of truth to those definitions, but I do think that they ultimately fail as definitions. I think that they're like, those are add-ons, not, they can't be the root 
of the meaning or the definition, if that makes sense. Well, yeah, I, I don't necessarily uh, fully agree, though, I, when you said that, like, the culturally generally, the culture generally loves another person. I, like, like they see it as like a two people are involved and they don't love like I think that everything that a non-Christian does is selfish and all like for me and it's a selfish thing. So like if I if I tell if I'm if I'm like saying that I love somebody and I'm not a Christian, I think that that's just like a selfish delusion. I don't know. I don't know if I can even say that a Christian has any right. I, I it just, I did not, I don't, well, something out of what you said, I didn't agree with, and I don't know what, where exactly it was, but I don't think that Christians have a good viewpoint. I don't, I don't think that or a non-Christian has a good viewpoint of what love is or even has any clue what it is. I think that everything that they do is selfish. I mean, wouldn't that make more sense? I, I don't know. Um, In the sense that, Without acknowledging God, if you are one of his image bearers, then everything you are doing is selfish in the sense that you aren't acknowledging your creator. In that sense, everything a non-Christian does is by definition selfish, according to that part. However, Mm -hmm. I I don't think that – one of the things Tim Keller says that I think is helpful sometimes is that um, non-believers still um, are recipients of what Christians call common grace. That is that they're still human beings. They still bear the image of God. And because of that, they're never as bad as their philosophy, If they're even if they're anti-Christian. So if you take an atheistic person who hates religion, they hate God, the concept of God, they hate the Bible, like they hate everything about Christianity, and you would say, oh, they must be like maximally sinful then. They won't be. Because they're still a human being, they still bear the image of God, they're still going to be better than their philosophy, right? And every Christian is affected by the flesh and Mm. what we call the sinful condition, Mm. and they're always going to be worse than their theological beliefs. So sadly, Christians are always going to be more selfish than you would hope they would be, but also non-believers are always going to be better than you might fear they would otherwise be. So that in some cases, you'll have people who are truly believers who, by every way we can observe, are worse people than some people who aren't believers. So philosophically, I agree that there's a way in which to be an unbeliever is inherently selfish because it is the rejection of acknowledging your creator. That's true. But from an observable perspective of putting other people first, I have seen people that I think are believers who are more selfish than some people who I think are unbelievers. And I, and I don't have, I don't think my theology does not create a problem with that. Because all those non Christians are made in God's come image. From scripturally. Where does that come from scripture? Yeah, but that doesn't mean I mean, yeah, wh- like yeah, where is common common grace like in scripture? Because I, I I do not right now I I'm I'm not convinced. Like I don't think that there's any way that Christians can do or say or be anything that isn't selfish. Like I know they can put other people before themselves once in a while, but I believe that they're just doing that out of selfish ambition so that they can gain something in the future from doing that. So I think that everything that while they might do like observably from another person, they might do a good act. I don't think that it's actually good or loving or selfish or selfless within their own heart. And that's why I don't, I don't like, like maybe common grace, like where does that come from in the Bible? Okay. So, so let me, let me ask, let me ask you a couple of counterfactuals first. So like imagine a non-Christian, young woman who's like 28 right she has a she has a child the doctor puts the baby in her arms she looks at the child and says and thinks i love this baby i would do anything for her right Mm -hmm. do you think that's selfish ambition or do you think that that's just a natural affection that god has programmed into human beings that mothers would have a natural affection for their children and that sin doesn't entirely destroy that I mean, it's still there. It's still. I, an, it's I don't a know. Feature. I don't know because people can. I mean, I don't know. That that's like what usually when I say what I just said before. That's usually what people say. What about a mother and her and her kids? And that's like the only thing that I haven't really fully wrapped my head around. But I. But I mean, there's also like millions of mothers every year who abort their babies, who like murder their babies. So that that's. I mean, I don't. Not not to say that that discounts all the mothers who truly care about their kids and and love them. But I, that's like the only um, sure. Well, have you ever had a non-Christian friend that put you first in any way that you don't think was inherently selfish? No, 
I haven't personally. Maybe I've just been around a bunch of crappy people, but I, I haven't. <laughs> Maybe I have. Yeah, but I mean, I in my case, I, Andy, I guess I one of the reasons I disagree is my father wasn't a believer, and he was mm-hmm. sort of the quintessential noble pagan. And though mm-hmm. I do think in retrospect as an adult, a lot of his quote, quote, good deeds could be faulted and shown to be rooted in selfishness. I mean, I think there were a lot of times he genuinely believed that it was virtuous to put others first. And he put others first because he believed that that was good. Now you could say, you know, he wanted to believe he was a good person. And so that's why he did it. Sure. But I don't actually know that wanting to believe you're a good person is a bad thing, you know? Um, So anyway, I I I don't think, I don't think to embrace, I mean, in some ways, even as sinners, you know, when God says in the Torah to the Israelites, he says, listen, the, the, the law I'm giving you today isn't so high up in the heavens that you can't reach it. Right. God, God says that, that, you know, even though most his commandments, we don't follow in practice. It's not like we can't. It's, we don't. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so like, it's true that in practice, human yeah. beings are profoundly sinful. Christians, open right. Graves. You're talking about, I'm talking, yeah, I'm talking about all human beings yeah. are pretty terrible. Right. Yours, right. All but I think, I, th- yeah. I think that there is, you know, th- th- that's why I think that like creating some sub definitions of love that's why I mean, Christians often use the word agapa or agape, like this idea of that there is a self-sacrificial love that is consummate with the character of God and that it is inherently worshipful. It is mm-hmm. driven by the sacrifice of the cross and, and seeking to be like Christ. And I think if you define it correctly, I think you could say that a non-Christian doesn't do that because they wouldn't be interested in doing that. And they don't have they don't have the concept of it, and they don't have the internal power for it. I, I'm okay with that, but I do think that if you do that, you have to allow for multiple definitions of love. Some of them involving things like natural affection, or f- friendship, and so on that are part of common grace. That is that is common to humanity, and that human beings are capable to do capable of doing it just because they bear the image of God. And that happens. It may not be consistent. It may not be. And it's not worshipful by its nature. And so there's a sense in which it's never going to be what it's meant to be. But so, so it's, so so any, it's I, just like, it, it depends a little bit yeah. on how you parse the whole I was going to ask right? if it was, it was like a middle ground type of thing where it's not like definitely 100% evil. Right. Like, I mean, if you, p- part of it's just like for like apologetically, it's like for communication with non-believers. If you just say to not, people who aren't believers in, in Jesus, like you, you can't love but I can't, I mean, they're going to kind of, they're going to laugh at you. I mean, like that's not going to make any sense to them unless you define love to be directly rooted to the work of the spirit in in a, in a, in a context in which it is, is connected to worship that part of the true good is acknowledging God. Then by definition, those who choose not to acknowledge God in what they do or to acknowledge God in what he teaches about what is really in the true good of another, then they can't love. But if love is rooted in self-giving affection to the best you understand to be what is in the true good of another person, then a sinful human being should be capable of doing that. And in some cases, what another person needs will be so simple as to be something that a non-Christian can easily perceive because any human can. Does that make sense? I mean, I, I, yeah, I, I think it makes sense. I just don't. I don't know if I agree. Like, I, I don't, I, I maybe I, and I think people like when I talk about this with people, they kind of get mad because I'm like super cynical about people just being super evil. And like, so maybe that's my problem, but I just don't think yeah. that like, I think like, for instance, like, I think it's a delusion. Like, I think that the reason why something like capitalism works is because we use gre- human greed to produce something like productive for a society or a culture where like people want to make money and stuff like that. I think that we do the same thing like with, with love is that we can use like selfishness because if I hold the door open for you, cause you're in a wheelchair, I'm, you know, doing it for you because I want to look good on the outside, which is selfish, but I'm still helping society flourish. And I, I feel like that's more of a delusion than it is actually people doing, having the capacity to do something that's actually like loving. I am. I don't know if that makes any sense. Do you, do you think a Christian can morally affirm capitalism? 
<laughs> I mean, it depends on on. I think that. So, I mean, I think one of the problem. I think that you. Well, you can, you just yeah, said that you I, believe capitalism's like foundational energy is human greed. Yeah, from right. So I think you have to look at it from two different perspectives. From a from a oh, um, look who can come up with nuanced definitions now. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not doing no. No, what I, let me explain. <laughs> what I'm saying. What I'm saying is that is, is that fr- from a non-believing perspective, you like as Christians, if we want to create a flourishing society and we live with non-believers, we live in a world with non-believers, and I live in a country with non-believers. We're going to want to make our society as best as we possibly can, knowing that a lot of the people in the society are very, very bad and they don't love Jesus. And I think that one way to do that is by using their selfishness to actually produce good. Um, and Christians would be produced. They, I mean, yes, we're still selfish as Christians, but I feel like we'd be more selfless. Like, I think that does that make any sense? Like, I think you can work within within the same system as a Christian and a non-Christian, but you can look at it in two different ways, where the Christian wouldn't be working for capitalism just to make more and more and more money. They'd be doing it so they could actually help society, whereas a non-Christian would be doing it just more and more and more money, greed, and and selfishness. I don't think that those are two, like, I don't I don't know. I don't think that's, like, like a crazy idea. I just think that that's yeah. how things work. I mean, so... From a theological perspective, I think that there is some there's some meaningful truth to what you're saying. That like, without being remade in the image of Christ supernaturally through regeneration and and being moved by Christ's death for us, it is very hard for us to give up our vanity and our glory seeking and our selfish ambition and our vain conceits and and to really become the kind of human being were meant to be seeking the flourishing of all people. I, I, I agree with that theologically. However, phenomenologically, like as things look and we experience them, I think we have to have operating definitions that can take into account the complexity of like, there are some, there are some Christians that are, that are clearly not very, very much changed by their beliefs. And there are other people that really seem to be operating with a certain amount of, desire to help others and to care for other people and so on. And I, I think if we just mm-hmm. say, well, it's just a form of selfishness. It's just a form of, of vain vanity that, that they do it by. Yeah. In some ways, all of our actions are in some ways contaminated by that kind of self glorification. If we're not in a position of humility towards God, for sure. But, but I also think that like, I just don't think it stands up to say like, just like all these non-Christians, all they do is, just all they're doing is selfishness. And it, like even even in relationship to like um, the philosophy that capitalism is built on, um, it, it's really Marx and the communists who said that it's greed that is the operating energy of of capitalism. I mean, the the people who actually came up with actually supported the concept of free markets believed that it was self interest and that co-op that cooperation was simultaneously created with competition such as to create the most efficient um, economy, the most focused economy and the most free trading economy in order to enrich everyone. I mean, even Adam Smith who wrote, um, uh, what's it called? Like the investigation to the wealth of nations. Yeah. Um, from which we get the idea of the invisible hand or whatever, like his first book was, um, Mm-hmm. Was it called something? It was like the it was a it was a book on morals. I'm 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 having trouble remembering the title right now, but like it, it was an investigation into morality, mm-hmm. like predicated on his investigation of morality. He believed that the most moral system was a free a system of free trade, in which people did what they thought would enrich the life of another person, and to which they would freely pay for. Right. So the whole concept of capitalism or free market trading, free economies, was built on the idea that, um that competition created accountability because we would otherwise be lazy and want people just to pay us for whatever we wanted to do. Right. This is what happens if you have kids, right? Like if you have children, what they'll do is they'll, they'll be like, I want some money. And so they'll think, Oh, mommy, and daddy always say that the pictures I draw are fantastic. I'll draw one of those and I'll try to sell to them for like $50. Right. And so the kid will come to you with like this drawing they spent 12 seconds on. And they'll be like, can I have $10 for this? And you're like, Oh, it's time for a lesson in economics, right. right? You're like, no, darling, you have to do something I want. Like if you, cl- you can clean one of the bathrooms, you can vacuum the rug and right. each of these, these, these things, 
they saved me a certain amount of time. They're worth a certain amount of money and I'll pay you for it. Right. Because she's, because when she made that picture, she wasn't thinking about me. She wasn't thinking about making my life better. She was only thinking about making her life better with the least amount of work she had to do to get the biggest payoff she could get. And you see communist systems function well, I mean, that way. Free market systems function the other way. Well, I was going to say, wouldn't you say that it's uh laziness that they're capitalizing off? Now, I'm not against capitalism, but I just want everybody to know that I, I love capitalism, but <laughs> I, I, I don't think there's laziness that they're capitalizing off of where it's like, like, okay, you could clean your bedroom and you could clean your house, but there's services for maids and for people to do that for you because you, you might just be too lazy to do it. And so like, like I feel like there's, it's more, or, or like, our phones or everything. I mean, we have one of the laziest cultures like ever. And I think that might be even a result of capitalism. I don't think that's absolutely horrible. Well, it's, part, it's partly the result of capitalism's success, right? It's, it's actually the result of wealth, which, which we probably shouldn't blame capitalism for in a bad way. Right. But people like yeah. uh, ethicists that talk about the morality of capitalism, like Arthur Brooks argue that the reason why capitalism is good is because it's loving is because it's a system that causes us to have to care about what the other person actually wants and values enough to pay for rather than whatever we want to do and offer them on whatever terms we wish to. And so it, may, it forces us to care about the other person and what they actually want and value. And in some ways, that's part of what a loving relationship is all about. Like a loving romantic relationship means that you care about what the other person really wants, not just what you want from them, right? And so in some ways to try to bring this back, I, to, I don't dude. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Bring it back to love. I, I could go on about this for hours. Yeah. So like to yeah, bring this ahead. back to love, like part of love is the I thou relationship that you care about the other person and what they truly need. Now, I think where you're trying to argue that non-Christians can't quote love is in the most robust theological sense to love another person is to give them what is in their true good. If Christ is Lord, then that which is related to right. Christ is always what their true good is. And if you if you don't acknowledge Christ, mm-hmm. you therefore by definition cannot know another person's true good and will not commit yourself to it. And therefore on that level, you are not loving them. Does that make sense? Right. However, yeah. in, in terms of like nature, like feeding a baby is in their true good, right? If Jesus was there with a mother, he would be like, hey, feed the baby. He needs to be fed, right? It's, there are right. some things that mm-hmm. in Christ, even in nature and in the, in the nature of the world we live in, what other people truly need, we can see and truly give them without it being quickened or like empowered by or ordered by or the wisdom of it given to us by Christ himself. That's part of what um, Reformed theologians have called natural revelation. That is the truth of God that we can see in nature and that we can find in the human conscience, even when we're not believers, it is corrupted, but it's still there and we can utilize it if we choose I mean, to. So you don't think that the mother is just going to feed the baby because if she doesn't, the baby will die and she'll go to prison. No, I mean, yeah, she like loves the baby, but like if the, but if she doesn't, she's like also her, her hands are tied here. If she doesn't want to feed the baby, she has to feed the baby because if she doesn't, the baby's going to die and nobody wants to have that on their conscience. I, I guess, but still the, you kind of lost me on the last sentence, right? Nobody wants that on their conscience. Well, why does their conscience have a problem with it? Because they want to be good. They, they have a drive inside of them to be conscientious. That is to do what they think is good, right? And to do what you think is good is about as good as anybody can do. Right. I mean, even the apostle I mean, Paul said, I think, right. I think you're when, when you say the apostle Paul says to do what you think is good, but do you think that the, what they think is good is more culturally, what's culturally acceptable? Like in our culture right now, like murder is still unacceptable for the time being. Now we'll see what happens in 50 years, but right now murder is bad. And so that's why people don't murder. But do you think in a culture, if you grow up, well, I mean, we see it in some of the inner cities, in like South Side of Chicago, where people grow up where murder happens all the time, and they and they murder people, and there's just no conscience there. I, I, do you think that that's like nature? I mean, I guess it's a question of like nature and nurture. I don't know, I, but I would probably lean towards what who you're around de- determines what you think is right and wrong. I think and the degradation of human conscience. 
I don't think that everybody is experiencing presently the exact same level of degradation in their conscience. So like there's, there's, there's this place where the apostle Paul says, um, certain people in the last days will behave as though their, their conscience was seared like with a hot iron. So like, um, if they've been cauterized, they don't work. That's not everybody. That's a certain particular group of people he's referring to that like something has happened to them where their conscience isn't operating more anymore. Right. Whereas mm-hmm. other people, they can hear something and it might convict them in a certain kind of way, even if they don't respond in the best way to it. So I, I think that God has put inside human beings, the capacity for conscience, right? And some people act according to conscience or relatively according to conscience a lot more than other people. And those things are good. Like, I mean, just take the mother example for a second. There have been lots of cultures throughout the history of the world in which infanticide was completely acceptable. And yet mothers did not like give their children over to infanticide, right? They, they wanted them. Right. Um, And yeah, I, I think, I think it ends up being too simplistic and I, part of it is it ends up being reductive to human beings, right? Human beings are very complicated and they bear the image of God. And yes, sin has profoundly distorted that, but there's still a lot of it left. And one of the, one of the, that's really important because human beings do a lot of good things. And if you don't have a robust doctrine of the image of God in people, like what the, what the Imago Dei can do, even in a sinful human being, then all of these great goods that human beings do, like we have trouble explaining, like how those can be, um, how God can take credit for them, how God can say, yes, that is part of my creation. Unless we recognize that this comes from the fact that they bear God's image, well, I, that creativity, those goods that humans do, even without acknowledging God, they still do as God's vice regents, as the ones created in his image. You can't get away from it. Right? And and because of that, yeah, pe- hu- that humans do goods they good. don't even want to do. Like, just as, hu- just as human beings are bad when they want to be good, human beings are often being good when they're trying to be bad. Like they, you just can't like just because you just it's like you can't get away from sin. You can't get away from the image of God. People are doing good things all the time. They don't intend just because it's in some ways natural. You know that's why well, I think because God can make good out of bad. I, I was going to ask earlier when you're talking about infant side. Like I mean, what do you define as infant side? Because there's Infanticide, millions and millions yeah. of women using Plan B. Or inf- I'm sorry. Um, well, I don't even know. Yeah. Anyways, there's millions and millions of women using Plan B and aborting. Like I would say, there's probably more babies murdered per year off of that than there are born, at least in the United States. So, I, I mean, the reason why I, I, why I'm like hardcore on this is because I think that Christians in America have like this super optimistic view. And I, th- I think it's a complete delusion of non-believers, and I think it leads us to not share the gospel with them and to not take their sins seriously and take our own sins seriously. So we say like, oh, this person's already like good enough. This person's fine. The, the society's generally good. We're, we're progressing in the right direction. And it's like, so why would I need to share the gospel with somebody if they don't, if they're already doing good? And this, I just don't think that it even works. I, I don't know. It just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, no, I, I like I I agree with two things that you're saying. One is that um, we uh, modern societies tend to engage in a lot of sentimentality, and the the reason why the present version of sentimentality is so dangerous is that modern people think that they're very cynical, and so they don't think that they're very sentimental, and so their sentimentalities are completely hidden to them. Like if they look at an old person who's kind of like, oh, I remember the good old days in the '40s and '50s when we used to drive around and you know, cars and blah, 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 blah. And they're like, oh, you know, eight track players and people are like, oh, you sentimental idiot. Right. And then they'll believe something that there is no mm-hmm. evidence for. And it's just like how they want to think the way they want right. to feel good about something. And it's, mm-hmm. it's sentiment. It's just sentimentality. Right. And it's a complete sentimentalism, but they don't recognize it such is because it's like, it's cynical or it's woke or it's something libertine or whatever. And so right. they don't think of it as sentimentality. So in that sense, I totally agree with that, that a lot of the use of love are like, they're not thought through. They're not clear. They don't work. If you analyze them, they don't stand up to scrutiny and they're not loving. I totally agree with that. But I don't think the implication of that is, mm-hmm. is that if you use a general definition of love that can, that can be used by Christian theology, that that general definition is something that never applies to a non-believer. I think the full, most robust definition of love that includes worship, that is the acknowledgement of God in all of creation and doing his will as we do the true good to another person, can't be done by an unbeliever by definition. And therefore, 
unbelievers can't love in that agapao, in that worshipful, in that fully God-centered and Christ-centered kind of way. Agree. But I also think, therefore, there has to be a broader definition of love, which includes actions of intended virtue for the good of another. And I think that non-Christians can and often do um, the best they know to do with some kind of development of virtuous self-control or strength towards another person in a way that they believe is in their true good. I, th- I think that happens constantly. Right. Among so that their attention, the second way, the second thing I agree with you about yeah, is I mean, that could... even people who are very good in those ways in that, in that broad pagan definition, those people are not good enough to escape their own damnation and require the substitutionary justification yeah. of the death and resurrection of Christ himself to make them right with God because they are at, mm-hmm. yeah, they're, they're at enmity with God. So, I agree with that too, that all need salvation and that there is a kind of love that can only be found in Christ. But I also think that there is a meaningful definition of love that is broader and that non-Christians can fulfill and do, do, and that in human, non-believing human societies decline when they move away from that pagan definition and they get stronger and do better when they embrace it. That it's not arbitrary. Yeah. Yeah. I would I would agree. I, I just do you think it would be good for churches to like differentiate between those? I just like when I'm when I'm listening to sermons and stuff like that or or whatever, and and pastors will just be like, "Man, you gotta love your enemies," and it's like, okay, we have a bunch of people in the congregation who are out in the world who don't understand all four definitions of love scripturally or the difference between the pagan definition and the Christian definition and all these different things. How then don't you think that there needs to be like a a more specific way of saying, okay, this is the type of love that we need to be examples of as Christians. I just think there's a lot of loose ends when, when pastors are given sermons and mm-hmm. people are out there talking about Christianity where it's like, you need to love somebody. And I'm like, okay, if I'm a new Christian and I'm like, okay, I need to love somebody. That means like, I need to stay in this relationship with, with my girlfriend that I'm having sex with because I need to love, I, you know what I mean? Like people get all crazy ideas. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. Yeah, I think so. However, I think that um I think that if we just keep working on the definition of love and trying to make it really clear, I think people will realize that they don't live up to it daily consistently. But I th- I think that there I but I think that if Christians deny that non-Christians act with love at least at times, that we're going to feel it's going to feel like we're just trying to fit reality into the, our preconceived theological definition. You know what I mean? Um, I guess it's like a different worldview then. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it helped I mean, me th- think about it from this step perspective, right? John 15, 13 says greater love has none, no one than this, right? That he laid down his life for his friends. So Jesus explicitly mm-hmm. says, listen, there's no greater form of love than somebody who will lay his life down for his friends. Okay. There were n- n- numerous examples, for example, in World War II of yeah. like men jumping on grenades to save their buddies, right? Some right. of those people were Christians. Some of them were not. Now, I have a hard time believing that those men jumped on grenades to save their buddies just because they wanted to be well thought of. Like, I- I'm not sure what the selfish motivation is there. I, I think, now I'm not saying it was a godly motivation. It might have been a really strong driving sentimentality that had no connection with reality, whatever it was. But I, I doubt it was insincere. Well, like, yeah, in a you way talk that about they that understood. Yeah. Right. There's a sentimentality. I'm not so first off, I don't know what I'm about to say. I I I respect veterans and I respect what people did in World War II because it's amazing. But I, I don't like at the end of the day, non Christians who sacrifice their life in any war are still going to hell. And so wherever, I don't know, it's just to me, it's just like, but okay, does that whatever. make their like, sacrificial act that created their death unloving? Like the fact that they can't mean, stand it, before it God makes justly them. doesn't necessarily mean that the act that they committed that caused their death wasn't an act of love. I mean, do you think they're going to go to hell for that? Or do you think they're going to go to hell for other things that preceded it? Well, they're gonna, right. A lot of different things. I just don't know. If, I mean, what does it mean? It doesn't mean anything, which means that to me, it doesn't feel like it is love. What do, you mean no it what do you mean it doesn't mean anything? Like there's no, it, like it doesn't matter at the end of the day. They're still going to hell. 
Like they but didn't, isn't that part of the point matter. of love that love matters to the other to which it's given, right? The, the men whose lives were saved, their future wives and families and generations that exist and don't ha, didn't die in that in that you know foxhole, like it mattered to them. It still matters to them, right? Like the fact that it doesn't objectively matter salvifically, it doesn't get anyone into heaven. That doesn't mean it doesn't matter, right? Well, what you're saying you is the most it doesn't do the most needful thing in the world. That's true. That's true. Salvation is the most. Is there a difference thing. between like? Does God show love, and I don't know if this does God show love like externally and internally through people? So God shows love through Christians through Christ internally, like we can show Christ's love as humans. Um, but like, do you think it's, it's a situation like that could be God like externally bringing good out of a terrible situation for the generations to come, and so people can see his goodness and even a horrible situation, but not to give the credit to the guy who actually jumped on the grenade in this scenario. Does that make any sense? It it does, but I would, I don't think that the, like if, if God had a providential intent or even decree in that person sacrificing themselves, I still don't think it would take away the moral quality of that person sacrificing themselves. And I don't see why we would try to define love in such a way as to not include that. Right. I, I don't know. I, I, <laughs> I'm not trying to de- maybe like degrade that, but it just, I, I just have a big issue with the way that Christians just think things are better than they are. And I know you talked about that. And this is a very specific example that we don't want to ever happen again with the stuff that happened in World War II. So, I, I mean, I don't know. But, the, yeah, but maybe that kind I'm of stuff happens wrong. all the time. I mean, I mean, like when, what about when a non Christian gives to the Red Cross? They're just like you know what I'm gonna I'm gonna give or I'm gonna go give blood, right? Like, you, you think that's bad? I mean, you don't you don't think that that's loving at all? I mean, why, right? I why see, are I, they doing it? I think your issue. Okay, so I think your issue is like partly. Does that kind of act like create some kind of merit with God? Does it like justify them? And the answer is no. But that doesn't mean it isn't loving, or it doesn't mean that it isn't a commitment of of will and action virtuously to the true good of another, right? Sure. I, my thought process comes from like in a perfect world, everything that we do in love is virtuous towards God. And so like in yeah. utopia in and in a utopian Christian world, then everything that we're doing. And so wh- sometimes when I look at it, the world, anything outside of that, like utopian kingdom, like Christian world is just complete and total evil. And I, and, and you're, and you're kind of saying there's like a middle ground and I don't know if I, I don't know. I don't know what I think about that. I don't know if I can, can you like prove it in scripture? I don't like, I know common grace you talked about, but is that like a script, like something you can find in the Bible? I I don't see, I don't, I disagree with the assumption in that question that, that scripture defines love the way you're saying. I think that scripture utilizes a generally understood idea of what love is. So as to clarify like what, how it functions. So let me, let me give you, let me give you, say a couple things and give an example. Okay. So for people who are really interested in the best defense of Andy's view, um, there's a, a very dense work by Jonathan Edwards called the nature of true virtue, where he basically makes the argument Andy's making, which is that um, true virtue rather than common virtue requires worship built into it. And the heart change and dynamic internal change being oriented towards God out of which we can function in the dynamics of true virtue. If we are not regenerate and experiencing Christ in that way and living in that way, then the best we can do is what Edwards calls common virtue. And Edwards argues that the biggest problem with common virtue is its bad motivations. That because its motivations aren't God glorifying, that be, even if they are for the true good of another person, like you really love this other person, you want to really help them, true virtue is always God glorifying. It acknowledges God and honors God and worships God as it works for the true good of another person. And when it lacks that, it's not true virtue. It's common virtue, right? God uses common virtue to keep people from being bad as they could possibly be while bringing glory to himself, while creating an opportunity to fulfill their common virtue into true virtue through salvation in Christ, right? It's a very dense work. A simpler work is his sermon called Charity and Its Fruits. Christian love as manifested in the heart of Christ and in the, in the heart in the heart and life. 
And that's a smaller, much more readable book on this basic concept. Um, okay. So, yeah, okay. So, uh, relative to truth to the word love in the Bible. So, the word love in the Bible does not receive a bunch of its own special definitions. Um, Jesus is using the definition of love people are holding in their minds, and then he's adjusting or altering it. So he's starting with the definition of love that they share. Now, part of the way that works in the the way the Old Testament teaches us that God is loving is that the word love doesn't show up in the Bible till later. That the concept of love um, isn't introduced and really worked on very much in the Old Testament until the concept of holiness is already established. So God starts with this idea that he's holy, that he's other, that he's maximally good, and that he's fully majestic, right? He is great, he is omnipotent, and he is good, right? And that is he has a moral purity to himself, right? Now, in the context of that moral purity, then he says he's loving. So the the Wesleyan theologians argued that therefore the, the right way to refer to God's um. God's reaction of um, care for us is holy love. That is, he is affectionate towards us. He's con- he's committed virtuously to our true good, and he does it out of his character of holiness. Now, that assumes that love needs more to define it because God spends hundreds of pages, hundreds of years, numerous stories to clarify his holiness. And only after he clarifies the kind of person he is, can he say, I'm loving. And I think that's one of the things you're getting at too, is if you want to know what Christian love is, you have to first understand the person of Christ. And then that that person who is Christ is loving. Right. And that's, it has a different character than anybody yeah. else saying I'm loving. But love, but love, even in scripture, has this kind of colloquial character that you kind of implicitly know what it is. It's the virtuous commitment of the self to the true good of another. And anybody can do that. But there is a— Do you think our current culture views it that way? Yeah, I just think the they current, have a really screwed up idea of what the true good of another person is. I, uh, I don't find maybe. very many people who are not Christians who I say, okay, can we define love as this? the commitment of the self and the will to the true good of another person. And they go, oh yeah, that's great. And then where we disagree is what is in the true good of another person. The, a lot of modern people yeah. will say um, the true good of in another person is whatever they ask for. That is, it's affirmational or empathetic. Whatever they say in their story, whatever they tell you they need, your empathy should say, okay, I'll give it to you. Or if a person is embattled for some reason and they say, I need you to accept me, I need you to affirm me, then love is affirmation. Whereas Christians can't accept those two definitions because our definition of love has to be rooted in God's holiness, i.e. the truth. Yeah. And therefore we can't give someone what's not in their true good even if they ask for it. Which, and okay, I think so that's where I, the real okay. difference lies. Yeah, I mean, I, so I want to give, I mean, maybe kind of just so I can back up what I was saying a little bit more, just like Isaiah 64, six says our good deeds are as was it, menstruated are as menstruated rags. And then John 15, five says, apart from me, you can do nothing. I, that's kind of where I, I come from just so people can know like, and, and I wanted to ask this though, because I think that it's important when you said um, that we disagree, like Christians and non-Christians disagree on what is what is for the good of the other person. And this is where I ask my question, like culturally, when talking about how should Christians love non-believers, like, and, and this is going to get dicey, but whatever, um, then should we be even involved in some of these as Christians? Because you hear a lot of pastors talking about social justice. You hear them talking about um, Black Lives Matter. You hear them talking about you know, whatever modern feminism. And it's like, we need to participate in all these things. And, and a lot of them, and I'm, I don't want to get super political because I mean, we kind of are, but whatever. Um, I, I don't think these are good for the good of others. I think the ultimate good of others is their salvation and them knowing the gospel of Jesus. And I think Christians are just kind of throwing that out and saying, no, we need to fight for these things that non-Christians are fighting for that are right. Like you said, there's, they're two completely different things. I don't think the good of the black community 
is fighting for what Black Lives Matter stands for. Personally, I don't think that's what is for the good of the black community. I think it's that they know the gospel of Jesus and they are discipled and they learn to love Jesus and have a relationship with him. And so how much should Christians be invested into some of these socially, politically correct things? I mean, that's one of my, I I didn't have any of these questions written down, but it's kind of where the conversation has gone. Um, So, yeah, so I I I mean... On one le- on one level, I agree with you. On one level, the thing that is most needful for the eternal good of any human creature is that they experience redemptive salvation in Christ. Absolutely, right. But listen, I sit down with with black leaders all the time, and if I said to them, "Listen, brother, don't you think though that in the black community, the most important thing, like the most ultimate, eternal, most important thing, is that African American people who you serve." believe in Christ and receive salvation. They would say, absolutely. Absolutely. And then they'd say, can we still do a reading program? Like, like I, I, like there are other goods too that black people may require or, or like support that they could be given. And generally speaking, if the gospel message is a message of love, their argument often is if, why don't we demonstrate love to them in a varied set of ways and then preach Christ as the one who is motivating this love. So let me give you an example of this. Um, Mike Beresford, our executive pastor, um, had a phone call at, earlier tonight with a African-American pastor in town talking to that person about how they were really struggling to keep their building. There's there's just maintenance that had to be done in their building. They just didn't have money to do. And um, having worship spaces for African-American churches in Madison is a huge problem. They just, most, most, most black churches just don't have their own worship space. And this church was losing theirs. It was literally crumbling around them, right? Then they didn't they needed money. They did not have to fix it, right? Well, one of the things we did is we, we helped raise some money, and we're going to give a big part of the last measure that's necessary for them to renovate their building, okay? Now, mm-hmm. we could have told that person, like, we're praying for you. Or, hey, if you want to do an evangelistic crusade in the black neighborhood your church is in, like will help because evangelism is the most important thing, right? But but this pastor was in tears because like what that person needed right then in the bigger scope of things was they needed to like to have their church not fall down, right? And that can be spread out yeah, more I'm, broadly I'm, than that. For, let me give you an example of this. Like you were talking about and how in South Chicago, there's some people who are brought up in such a way as that their consciences are so seared that they don't seem to have moral compunctions about people being, about murdering people, right? Well, what do you think that does to the capacity of their conscience to be, to be like convicted by the work of the spirit, right? Like if they're, if their consciences are seared from a young age because of the context that they're living in, it doesn't help them accept the message of the love of Christ later. So like what I would say is that yes, there is a true total good that is in Christ, but there are many human functional subsidiary goods. There's lots of different goods. Like, like I was listening to the interview with you and your parents the other night and like, you said explicitly, like, one of the things that my dad and mom did was they didn't get a divorce. All my friends' parents were divorced. And, like, I don't think kids mm-hmm. care that much if you, if you fight, if you stay together. What they want to know is if you're going to stay together, stick it out and be there, right? Like, that was a subsidiary good. Like, that didn't lead you to Christ. That wasn't, like, your parents did that because they believed God wanted them to do it. But the gift it was to you was it taught you something about marriage, about your parents' love for each other, about their love for you. <laughs> which was a lesser subsidiary good. Now they did it because they were motivated by Christ, but you could do it for some other reason, right? And those are all good. So like, so should Christians get involved in Black Lives Matter? Well, if it's just the question of, should we love other people in ways other than just preaching the gospel? I think the answer is yes. Now, if the problem is that in our best prudential wisdom, we don't think that the the policies certain black lives leaders want to lead us in to help the black community are really going to help them. If we think that those things are going to do more harm than good, then conscientiously, yeah, we might say, look, I can't, I can't do that because I don't think it's loving. I don't, I don't think it's in their, in their interest or in their good. Right. And in that way, I think people might draw back and say, I'm not going to do that. But like what I've tried to do as a leader at high point, whenever um, my black friends have said, Hey, I want to do X because I think it's going to help black people. And I really just think it's actually going to be bad for black people. What I say is, okay, that's really cool. You're going to do X. Is there a Y that I can be part of with you? Like another thing you're going to do that you also care about, but that I think is going to do good. 
Like it's going to accomplish a good. Mm-hmm. And then I try to participate yeah. in that. So, and that's happened before. Like I've had, I've had friends that they were like, Oh, you don't want to be part of that. I was like, no, my understanding of human development is I actually don't think that's going to do much good. Um, but I want to help. Are there other things you're going to do that maybe I do believe in? And they're like, Oh yeah, there's these other three things. I was like, well, number two, I really like, let's do that one. And so I think there are ways in which you can get in there and do things that you believe are loving because they are in the true good of another person. But yeah, it's going to like love creates a lot of disagreements for sure because you end up disagreeing about what's in people's true good. I mean, try parenting sometime. I mean, you're like, you're well, always at that problem because yeah. your kid thinks something's in their true good because they want it. Right. And as a parent, you're like, that's actually not what's best for you. You know? Yeah. So, and, and I'm right. not, so and I'm I not think saying generally look, speaking, then I, think- you know, Andy, sorry, in a woke world, I have to yeah. give a caveat here because people are going to think that I'm comparing the parent child relationship to like me working with black leaders. And I am not, those are just different illustrations of the dynamic of trying to discern what's in the true good of another and all kinds of different people and all kinds of different relationships have to do that. So please do not think that I'm equating those two. I'm not. Yeah. Right. And so I think like then, then at the end of the day, like what Christians think I think then at the end of the day, I think Christians have to look at the world's solutions to problems. For, like, I guess we're using this problem or the, the issues that we see in, in the black communities and how we can help as a church and what the world is doing to help. I think, right. Then once you say that naturally as believers, our conclusion would then just be different than the worlds where if I think that the betterment of another person is different based off of my relationship with Jesus, because I'm a Christian, then I'm just not going to participate in the things that they participate in to actually help. And this is like, I mean, this is why I think that I know that we've kind of, it maybe feels like we've gone down a rabbit hole, but I don't actually think we have. I still think we're talking about love because yeah. I, I just get so frustrated and annoyed after anything happens in the culture. Um, Christians jump on social medias and talk all this talk about, you know, you as a Christian, you need to be supporting black lives matter. You need to be supporting, taking away guns. You need to be like all this stuff. And I'm like, okay, wait, like, is that the loving thing to do? Or is that an emotional reaction that the culture that you're getting wrapped up in? And it feels like, I feel like there's just an emotional reaction that the culture is kind of getting you wrapped up in. And Mm -hmm. so as Christians, I feel like we should have a different viewpoint of how to love these people based off of what we think is good for them. And it's not talked about enough. I don't think it is. Yeah. And and obviously quote these people, that is the the people that you're seeking to love. There could be like lots of different objects for that. That could be like, you know, undereducated white people, that are that are having an opioid crisis in the rural areas that could be i mean that could be a lot of different groups yeah. of people obviously so yeah i mean right. so i think that there's th- there's three ways to look at that one is to say that we are trying to get to the gospel of salvation in christ always with everyone all the time that is true mm-hmm. okay now be- because I, and i don't think that a christian can behave lovingly if you're not hoping to give people that invitation to their greatest and truest good Okay. Now, secondly, I also think there are other goods besides salvation that are part of um, taking dominion in creation and trying to create contexts of human flourishing, which are good, that are part of loving each other in the world. And I think that we can and should participate in those relative to a bunch of things we don't have time for right now. Um, Thirdly, I think that there is this issue of whether or not you believe in action is in the true good of another person. Um, the question then comes up, what happens when somebody says, I want you to love me in way X and you don't think that that's actually in their true good, then what? And I think that there's, there's two possibilities there. One is that you have to be true to your conscience and tell them you don't think that that will really help and say, I can't do something that I don't believe is in your true good. There there is a second option, which I have taken and you have, this is a little bit more daring, I think in some ways, which is what you say this, listen. And this is what I would say is called, would be the tactic of loving solidarity, where you'd say this. You say, listen, I actually don't believe this is going to work. However, we're in this together and I'm here to love you. And so as long as you know, I don't think this is going to work. I will stand and walk through this with you and try it and see if we can get it to work. And if it doesn't work, hopefully we'll learn something and you'll learn something but hopefully we'll both learn something. And if it does work, then I'll learn something. Um, But, and I don't consider what the time and money that I'm investing in this a waste. 
so long as both of us are going to make sure that no matter what happens, we're going to learn something about what God wants to do in the future. And so, for example, I've worked with African-American leaders who wanted to do certain things that I didn't think were going to make much difference, but they really believed it was going to make a difference. And so I sat down with them. I said, okay, so, so here's how I feel. Uh, my view of how human beings develop and change would say this isn't going to make much difference. You think it might, and, and you're optimistic about it. So let me ask you this. I'm with you. Tell me what we're going to learn if it works, and tell me what we, what we will have learned if it doesn't work. Right? And so I did that with one African-American friend when we were doing like an initiative that was going to cost tens of thousands of dollars of high points of money. And we, we like wrote it down. We talked about it very carefully. And, he, and he, in the end, he said, Nick, listen, I understand you disagree with me. I understand you think that this isn't going to work. Um, but I, I know, and I know you think that maybe you're wrong, right? Like, cause I, I really, I was like, listen, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I don't understand the phenomenon that I'm dealing with here. Maybe you know it better than me and maybe this will work. Right. And so, um, so we'd spent money and they like, they, they did this initiative along with another initiative we were helping them with that I did believe in. And, um, so, so, so even though I didn't agree with it, I didn't pretend I agreed with it, but I still stood with them in it out of solidarity. And I just did, we just did this time what they wanted to do, even though it was with our money. And I still felt like that was honest before God and honest before these friends and that it had integrity, even though I didn't agree. And I think especially across racial lines, loving people across racial lines, I think sometimes you're going to be in situations where you disagree. And sometimes you have to like, to show them that you're with them, you have to say, "Listen, I I don't agree, but I do accept that maybe I don't I don't know why. Maybe I'm. It's possible I'm wrong. Let's try your thing this time, and then you right. just see. You know. Yeah, or even in the church, like you have to do that just with different viewpoints in the church, and uh, and so right, I, I agree. I think right. Yeah, I mean, the only thing that my mind goes to is like, unless it's like immoral and like it's just blatantly just wrong and yeah. scripture just says not to do it yeah and i, I yeah. would i would agree yeah um, if you really think it's going to cause more harm yeah there's and but and you know and even but even with failure every time there's failure there's still the problem of the fact that people are, are now more demoralized and they and you as leaders you have less clout because you just failed so i mean even failures right. like that still cost something besides just the yeah. what you've invested but um yeah i just I don't, like one, I think one of the things remember, how you have to remember about love in, in a world that is still under the curse is there's a lot of carnage in, in love. Like there's just, it's, it's a messy business. It's not a neat, it's not a neat business. There's a lot of flailing about whether you're a Christian or a non-Christian, mm-hmm. you know, I want, we, we got, I want to do one more question before we end. Yeah. Um, Cause we're about an hour into it. So, I mean, we kind of skipped like all these questions. Maybe we could do a part two or something like that. But, um, Part, uh, question 11, I said, in, in an earlier podcast, you said that grace without truth is appeasement. Um, what is a good balance of truth and grace that we can try and strive for while loving people and loving God? I think that's important. You know, there's a lot of churches that say, like, you got to be completely graceful. And then there's other, tr- and then, and then you know, they let everything slide. Mm-hmm. And then you got other churches who are just like, it's all about the truth. And, and they beat people to the ground with the truth and, and legalism. And then everybody just hates themselves and they don't really get anywhere. And so with love, because I think grace and truth are both kind of attributes of, of love. How do we balance that out as Christians to say, okay, well, this is a good time to love or show grace. So this is a good time to, to, to be really truthful. So what I'm going to say is I'm going to sound like an answer at first, but I promise it will be. Um, I think one of the, okay. biggest, the biggest realizations for me relative to love is to understand the concept of virtue and how virtues are developed. So I, when I was in, when I was like uh, doing volunteer youth ministry, one of the first youth pastors I worked under said, Nick, and I mean, I was like, I was like 19 years old, right? He goes, Nick, is love a feeling or an action, Right. And I remember thinking that this was a profound question and that I knew the profound answer. And the profound answer was that it was an action, not a feeling, right? And that like worked for me for a long time because what it meant was like, you know, there were a lot of people that said they loved each other and then they did, they weren't there when it hurt. They weren't there when it was tough, right? right? So yeah. I was like, yeah, you got to know that love is an action, not a feeling. Okay. But later on, one of the things I realized was that people don't flourish in the absence of deep, meaningful, heartfelt affection. Like if love isn't a feeling, it's not love either. Right. So then Hmm. what is it? Right. And so 
as I like read more theology and read more philosophy and whatever, what I began to realize was, is that love is a virtue. It's a kind of strength, right? Virtue comes from the Latin vir for strength or virility, right? It's a, it's, it's a, it's a strength of character. And if you have the strength of character, which is the virtue of love, you have the ability to delight in and care for another person, i.e. love is a feeling. And you have the strength to be there when it counts and to act in such a way as to be for the other person's true good, even in a sacrificial way. That is, it's a, it's an action, right? And the two coexist together in their proper proportion, right? So like um, love in, in, in one sense is the queen of all the virtues and, the, and it binds them together in unity. So there's a, in the book of Colossians in verses, um, in chapter three, it says, sorry, therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. So part of the idea here is like, love is like all of these virtues bow together in perfect unity. That's what love is. Does that make sense? And love also is built over a process, like it says in 2 Peter 1, 3 to 11, that like you have to add your faith, goodness to goodness, knowledge, knowledge, self-control, self-control, perseverance, perseverance, godliness, godliness, brotherly kindness, brotherly kindness, love. Like it's built up like in increasing strengths as well as these diversity of these virtues built together in this single thing that binds them together in perfect unity. When you become that kind of person, you develop the virtue that we sometimes refer to as prudence. That is, you know the right thing to do the right way at the right time with the right proportion. Only a person of virtue can exert prudence in any given situation. So like we can talk till we're blue in the face about like the proper balance between grace and truth. But the fact is, is it's different every single time. The way you are both truthful and yeah. gracious simultaneously in a particular situation requires the highly advanced virtuous character of one who has mastered all these virtues of humility and kindness and gentleness and patience and truth telling and forgiveness and like clarity and right godliness and brotherly kindness so that you can actually be loving which is to exert yourself prudentially that is to be able to choose and control and deliver the right thing in the right way in the right proportion at the right time And so my response to this is, this is not a theological question. This is a developmental question. You have to pursue godliness. And the further you grow in your pursuit of godliness, Mm -hmm. the better you will know how to bring together grace and truth in any given situation. So to put it in sports terms, practice. Just practice, 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 practice. Yeah. And you'll be ready for the game. Right. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I was expecting you to say anyways. And I think like which this probably goes into practicing godliness, like following the, what the Holy spirit says, or like learning how to discern between what the Holy spirit is saying and what is just what I'm thinking, um, which is a developmental thing as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I had like 11 questions written down, but we're already over an hour. So we should probably wrap things up. I mean, and we can do a part two about this because there's so many different aspects of love and this is just a big topic but do you have any anything you wanted to say to kind of close it out I, I am preparing a series on this um that i think might be at the beginning of next year um on love and partly because i like i have the same issue that you do that like i feel like people really have a hard time getting their mind around what love is and then really growing into it as people people think love is simple and easy and it's not it's the most yeah. complicated and hardest thing in the world to do it's I, I, so there's this place at first John where John says, God is love. And that always struck me as a terrible blasphemy if it wasn't in the Bible, right? right. Like to reduce God to love. I mean, that's gotta be one right. of the most horrible things you could possibly say, un- unless you believe that love is the hardest and most complicated thing that there ever was. That it's every, yeah. it's every, it's every virtue, everything good, uh, every providential thing all put together in the right way at the right time, at the right moment, like it, with all the right. complexity of God himself. If you believe it's that, it's only degrading to God if we've degraded love already. Right, you degrade the concept of love, and then yeah, then you degrade God by saying God is love. But if you have a fully theologically robust understanding of what love is, then God is love isn't so bad, right? Yeah. And so, um, yeah, I think that I, th- I think that Christians really need a much more robust understanding of love. But I, I do want to say this, Andy. I, I do think that it's important that we use on one level a colloquial definition of love. 
And then we put a theological robustness into it from the gospel. Because otherwise, I think if we go to non-Christians, just say, look, none of y'all love, but I do. Me and the other Christians, we love, but you don't. I I just think that that'll feel so preposterous on the face of it. And what's really going to happen there is miscommunication. We're not bringing them this truth where like they don't love and we do. It ends up being, they don't really understand what we're saying. And we might not even understand what we're we're saying, right? Right. They do things for other people that they think is in their true good and they do it out of affection and they're there in action and they're doing it out of the strength of their character. I think that we should say that's love. Yeah. Is it the, is it the full love they were made for? And is it treasonous to do that? Not in the name of the God who created them. Right. Like, I think we need to like sort that out a little bit better because so, uh, otherwise it's good. It's just such a turnoff to say to an unchristian. Well, like you got, you can't love nothing to do is love. I think we need to say it's what you're doing is virtue. But it's what it's what theologians have called common virtue rather than true virtue, because what it's lacking is the fact that everything comes from God and should be pointed back to God. And when we don't include that, and we're not yeah. when we're not motivated by the thankfulness of Christ to bring us to a place of true selflessness, because Christ has given all for us. So we give all back to him. And because he is everything to us, we can give everything away. And if you operate out of that dynamic, then you can engage in true virtue. And if you don't have that dynamic, what comes out of yourself yeah. must come from yourself. And that is a limited form of virtue, even though it's good. It is common to this nature in this world. And it's it's not what you were made for. Right. And I, I think if we can make that distinction, yeah. our evangelism is going to go a lot better. Mm-hmm. And we're going to communicate with people rather than Yeah, insult. I was going to say... Right. For the record, like I'm not going around to non-Christians and being like, I love and you can't. I don't think that anybody should do that. I was just speaking like in like two Christians. So that's a horrible way to do evangelism. Point blank. You just shouldn't do it that way. But if you Um, can't tell a non-Christian what you think, like then maybe you should rethink what you think. You know, you don't know. Do you understand what I mean? So I think there's another way to articulate it even for ourselves, that's true. Cause like, yeah, if I have something that I, I can't tell a non-Christian because it's too demeaning, I need to really ask myself, is it because they're thinking so differently that they can't even conceive of it? And it's so far out of their, their mental structure of what could even be plausible that they can't even conceive of it. Or is it because the thing is just insulting and it might just be wrong. Right. Well, and sometimes it is the first one because you mm-hmm. don't receive the like enlightenment of the word of God until you receive the Holy Spirit. And so some mm-hmm. things they just can't even comprehend. Yeah. But right. Other things are just kind of being a a, a jerk or, or insulting. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, I guess that's it for today. Um, <laughs> we, we'll probably I think we'll probably end up doing a part two because I didn't get through any of the questions that I had written down. But I thought that was good. Um, a good kind of baseline going forward. Um, but anyways, yeah, make sure to like this, um, give us five stars, follow, subscribe, all those fun things. And um, thank you for listening and we'll see you guys in the next one. Goodbye.